Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Before she was the star of HBO's Sex in the City, Sarah Jessica Parker found a lot of work doing pretty typical supporting roles, like a lot of actors. You know, not the woman in the rom-com who gets married to her soulmate, the woman with whom that woman dishes. If you ask Sarah about it, though, she'll tell it to you straight. She wouldn't have had it any other way. Maybe it's just the way I'm choosing to remember them, but those were always, for me, the more interesting role anyway. They weren't on screen as long, and um, they never got to kiss anybody, but they always had insight, and they were a source of comfort, and they were counsel and ears and eyes and witness to, and you always knew that if they could just survive until college, the world was going to be their oyster. And maybe that's because that's how I felt. (laughs) It's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to Sarah Jessica Parker about her role starring in the HBO series Divorce. She'll tell me about where she got the inspiration for the show's tone. 70s cinema was the central inspiration for me. I mean, that's what I kept circling around and I encouraged everybody else to circle around and, you know, all the great movies from the 70s and how they were shot and music from the 70s. I wanted that to not only play a really important role, but I imagined that that music was the music as separate young people they fell in love to, you know. Then later, Chris Gethard. I'll talk with him about his one-man show, Career Suicide. He'll also tell me why he thinks there's no worse fate for a comic than being just okay. I want to fall on my face. I want people to watch me get caught. I want people to watch me just get blindsided by the failure of my own idea. I want to either succeed big or fail hard. And finally, I'll tell you why Paul Simon's Graceland is the perfect record for middle age. It's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. In a resume that has spanned decades, Sarah Jessica Parker has performed some of the most compelling characters in TV and film. She kicked off her career at just 15, starring on the CBS teenage comedy Square Pegs. From there, she appeared in movies like Footloose, L.A. Story, and Hocus Pocus. And there's also some show called Sex in the City. No big deal. When I talked with her a couple years ago, she'd just launched another new show on HBO. It's called Divorce. Its second season wrapped up earlier this year. They're working on a third one now. It's a dramedy that talks about the end of a marriage and the wreckage and rebirths that you find in its wake. Sarah plays Frances, a corporate recruiter who's been with her husband Robert, played by Thomas Hayden Church, for 17 years. Church and Parker, I don't really want to call it chemistry since they are splitting up on the show, but there is something compelling about the way they interact on screen. The series takes on topics like commitment, fidelity, even finances in a very frank and sometimes very funny way. Here's a little bit from the first season of Divorce. In this scene from the show's pilot, Frances gives her husband the news. You spent last Christmas fishing in Alaska. No, no, hang on a second. That's the only time of the year that the Chinook salmon run in those numbers. And you said you didn't mind. I didn't mind. It was the best Christmas I have had in years. You're welcome. Sometimes I come home from work and I'm happy. I actually feel happy. And then I see your car there parked and I realize you're home and my heart sinks. Is this about my old job? Is that what this is about? I want to save my life while I still care about it. I don't love you anymore. I want a divorce. Sarah Jessica Parker, welcome to Bullseye. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I want to ask you something um, uh, serious to begin with, which is I had this experience a a couple of years ago where uh, a pair of good friends of myself and my wife uh, split up. They were married. And um, 
my my own parents were divorced when I was very young, and I you know I always thought oh it was for the better. I mean they didn't get mm. along. Um, but when these friends of mine were splitting up, uh, I sort of freaked out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> like I was really legitimately <laughs> freaking out about it. These people <laughs> live three thousand miles from me. <laughs> Like, I I care about them very much, but they, I see them once a year. <laughs> right. And uh, it it occurred to me, like, how intense, I just, I guess I had just never asked, I just walled off that part of my, my life experience. Mm-hmm. And the wall just crumbled all in one go. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder what it's like for you to live with, in the way that you live with this subject when you're making a TV show, live with divorce, you know, every day when you go to the office? Yeah. Um, the experience is um, not um, not a personal exploration for me, you know, uh, in terms of trying to sort out my own home life, but rather, I guess in some ways, what you have described as witnessing your friend's marriage fall apart. You know, for me, it's a fascinating way to spend a lot of hours because uh, I guess, you know, the reason that I was interested initially in developing this show was because I, I, I like yourself, I was watching friends' marriage uh, fall apart. I was witnessing friends um, contemplate affairs, friends have affairs, marriage survive affairs, marriage be better for having having one party uh, have an affair, you know, uh, um, people contemplating divorce, not divorce, and all those things that surround um, surround you when you reach a certain point in your life and people have been in committed relationships, meaningful, substantive relationships. And I like very much exploring it. It's the exact way I wanted to do it. It's the tone that I was hoping for because it's for some it's devastating for others it's um, an opportunity to sort of um, make alliances um, and I think it's really complex and I think people's reactions to divorce when it's not their own are really often surprising to themselves does it does it freak you out I mean that that like when you when you spend time with it in your heart do you do you feel freaked out and I don't mean like in the sense like uh does it make you feel like uh uh you and your husband are going to get divorced um but like it's it's like an existential dread for me <laughs> I think I think it doesn't freak me out sometimes it m- makes me very sad um and I'm um I don't know I'm not I'm not freaked out by it because it's both an artistic and academic exercise in some ways and for me I guess I've been an actor for so long that I um I have found a way to compartmentalize the work um I also come home to three children and a active household and chaos and um, I don't I'm not at liberty to let it um, penetrate really beyond the threshold in some way of my own home um, but I love the story I like pushing on the bruise I, I've always been that way and um, I've, I'm much more interested in the potential to be freaked out than not I want to play a pushing on the bruise scene from Divorce. So uh, your character, whose name is Francis, is a headhunter. And this is the this is the cold open of, of the third episode. And she's sitting down with a client who's looking for a new gig. Um, and they have this conversation. I never thought I'd be the kind of guy to use a headhunter. Executive recruiter. Oh, sorry. But I want to know what's out there for me. Okay, uh, what are you looking for? I'm not sure. Mm. So I've been at this job for 20 plus years, and mm-hmm. it's just the same thing over and over and over mm. and over again. I'm not getting any younger. Call me crazy, but I want a new challenge. It's a whole big world out there, and uh, I've lost 20 pounds. I want to see how I fit into it. And we're too late for a fresh start, right? Yes, right. Maybe. So I was thinking. But doesn't it make more sense, Ted, to hold on to what you've got? 
Because if you lose it, then you might end up with nothing at all. Nothing. And then what is there to do but wrestle with your own regrets while you wait around to die? Um, I, I mean, I, I, I was just wondering what was out there. What if there's nothing out there, Ted? Just a thought. <laughs> she seems ill-equipped to be doing that job right now. <laughs> I think she's um, projecting far too much onto those poor, um, innocent job seekers. That that may, yes, be the subtext of that scene. Possible. Um it seems like one of the big things that's going on in divorce is these characters essentially trying to figure out who they are without this context that they've relied on. And it's something that I think a lot of people who are in long-term relationships can uh, r- relate to, that you define yourself I- in relationship to the people around you and especially to your, you know, your spouse and children you know, your family. Um, I I wonder if you've ever been in this position where you lost the, you know, the things that you defined yourself relative to and had that kind of combination of possibility and, uh, (laughs) I guess, terror uh, that, that comes with that. I think that in some ways what's happening right now in this country is a version of what you describe. You know, it's this kind of point of reckoning for everybody. I think people feel a a tremendous sense of loss and a readjustment and sort of figuring out who they can be moving forward, how to maintain values and um, find a voice. And I, I think people feel untethered. And um, I think for Francis, it's 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 in fact that thing, that idea, that, you know, you played the clip and for me is the sort of fulcrum for the whole show is when she says, I want to save my life while I still care about it. And um, I think that it, it, you know, this idea of who we think we want to be, these ideas of freedom and liberty, and for Francis, this idea of liberation from this marriage that she feels is um, de- deadening, and you know, this there's sort of inertia that is unbearable. You were on Sex and the City for six or seven years, and or it, ten or twelve. Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, you, a, a further, a further several thereafter, um, and you know, like. On the one hand, this is the greatest job in the world. You're, you're working on a, a great show that is just like culturally iconic, and you got a great part on it, um, and you're great in it. Uh, everybody thinks so, and uh, you go to work every day, and you know you're you're doing a good job working on a good thing, right? And that ends. And on the one hand, you have the kind of extraordinary possibilities that come with, you know, being in show business and coming off of a big success. Uh, On the other hand, you are no longer living with this thing where you just like went to work nine months a year or whatever it was and knew that you were working on the thing that you do. And I wonder what that was like for you. Um, It was uh, um, all sorts of things um i felt that at the time <clears throat> pardon me i felt at the time that it was important that i stopped doing the show i loved it for all the reasons you've cited and uh, you know many many more um but i recognized you know up until that point in my career i'd always been a journeyman and that's exactly what i wanted most was to just do lots of different things and work in the theater and then do a movie and then, I, I don't know, whatever came my way that was interesting and, and not only that, possibly allowed me to pay my bills. And at a certain point, as I sort of sat in the cozy cradle of this extraordinary experience, both Michael Patrick and I realized that um, maybe we should stop and <laughs> maybe we should... Um, 
finish telling this story at this time, also while we were, you know, in people's good graces. And, um, and I had a new, I had a fairly new son, uh, my first child, and I felt like I needed to have experiences again outside of this experience. And initially, of course, it felt exciting and slightly foreign um, to not be responsible to and for this job and this group of people and um, the people I worked for and with. And over time, it became a very sentimental thing to recall. And I was nostalgic as I walked the streets and remembered what we shot on that corner and, and, and that corner and that street and that alley. But I never felt uh, regretful. Um, it, it was as full and rich an experience as I could, could ever have hoped for. And I never felt burdened. I never felt resentful of the association or that it was limiting me in some way or that it, I wanted some of that time back. I just felt like I had been part of something where I got to play a character who was complicated and flawed and I and I loved figuring her, her out and I got to live this alternate in somewhat like a, an alternate universe I'm spending more time sometimes being somebody else than being myself and um, it was so full and so even now when I talk about it it's it's hard to imagine 90 100 hour weeks but I, I wouldn't have changed any of it. <laughs> I like that your actual day-to-day life was essentially a Sex in the City walking tour. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, <laughs> and you know I live downtown, so I also, um, I'm really in the heartbeat of it, always, and um, and it's sweet and and nice. But there are times that I have to strategize really quickly about left or right because there are wonderful groups of people standing around <laughs> on corners and stoops and um it's not always the opportune time to to chat <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've got your you've got ways on your phone programmed to uh, uh avoid a two block radius of the magnolia bakery at all times <laughs> I have an internal ways <laughs> without a, no, a non-app radar ways. There's a look in people's eyes. I can see it from far away, and it's very touching um, and full of generosity, but I don't – it's not always the right time. I, I feel like your character, Carrie on Sex and the City, was such a fantastical one, like such a fantasy of mm. urbanity, you know? Mm-hmm. And yes. I wonder what part of that was the heaviest lift for you as an actor to do for seven or eight years or actually 10 or 12 years. Um, like what part of it was the what part of it was easy to put on and what part of it was tough to put on? Um, so the the part I liked most uh, the stuff I liked doing the most was all the emotional stuff. I I loved it. The stuff for me that is hardest is the are the coffee shop scenes. <laughs> hmm. um, the um, bippity bip stuff. Um, that was um, for me the most taxing and I can't even be, I can't, it's I can't quite explain why. I think it felt, um, I don't know. It was it was hard to maintain that kind of souffle all the time. Right. Um, it was that was a necessary uh, part of the storytelling. But the sort of that souffle, that kind of, um, and sometimes those scenes were went deep, and I love that. I love when it was it got yanked down into the basement. But the hardest part for me was the um, the kind of whipped cream stuff. I think that's. I think that souffle seems like a great metaphor because it seems like, at least from an outsider's perspective, one of the hardest things about doing that, and especially when you're talking about doing that for a you know twelve or fourteen hour shooting day, and then coming back the next day and picking up a few extra hours, is that you know to some extent, if you're playing a big emotional conflict, you get benefit from pushing harder. 
Um, you know, you can always throw more weight into it. And it seems like one of the challenges of doing 12 hours of breezy lightness that has to that is a very specific and kind of perfect kind of breezy lightness is that if you push it, the souffle deflates. Talk completely. This is why I wanted to be on your show. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And it's a fine it's a it's a very well, as souffles are, they're very delicate, they're very tender, they're made of glass, actually, not dairy products. And um and also, as you describe these days of the camera moving, 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 overs, masters, masters from that side, that side, that side, that side, which, you know, it's your job to find the, you know, stamina. But there is something that um, is – it doesn't charge more. And you do – if you push, it's grating, it's cloying, being cute, charming – when it's effortful, it's really unbearable for any dis- any discerning audience. But you're really good at being cute. I mean, like if I think oh, of if I think of you in uh, like L.A. Story or something, you know that is as that is a world that is even more fantastical than <laughs> Sex in the City, right? Like it's like a, yeah. it's an absurd world. Yes, <laughs> um, and you have this impossible job, which is to be like a completely absurd caricature that feels like a real and genuinely interesting and charming human being. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, that's... You're right. always on roller skates. You know what I mean? Like that's, Yes. Yeah. Just start there. Try and play any character a- as a relatable human being who's always wearing roller skates. <laughs> who's always moving. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the reason that was, I think, doable, and not only doable, but compelling as an actor is because... It, because it was Steve Martin's version of an ingenue, it wasn't um, conventional in any way, which I'm convinced is the only reason I got the job because I never got jobs like that prior to Steve Martin saying I was um, acceptable for that idea because she was so – that was such an odd world he created. I mean that was in fact an, uh, an altered world. It was well into the future. It was such a peculiar, wonderful place to be. And so she was part of that world. And otherwise, she would have been your boilerplate kind of girl that was too young for the fellow. You know, not not at all interesting. Let's hear some L.A. stories. So uh, your character's name was Sandy, which had a very unusual spelling. And um, <laughs> I'm glad that in my notes about this, they've reproduced the spelling exactly in order to confuse me. Jump. Do you want me to see if I can get it right from memory? Yeah, go for it. Uh, big S, small A, small N, big D, small E, big E with like a little star at the end or something? Yeah, you nailed it. Nailed yes. it. So uh, <laughs> you and Steve Martin's character, whose name is Harris, are coming back from a date in this scene. And um, this being uh, Steve Martin's Los Angeles 1991, immediately uh you are suggesting that Harris get a colonic from her place in Santa Monica. Have you ever had a high colonic? Pardon me? A high colonic. You mean an enema? Yeah. I keep waiting for you to say joke. Oh, they're great. I mean they really purify you. There's this place in Santa Monica that do it. Oh, they're great. Oh. Is this where you live? Yeah. Yeah, here. It's really groovy. <laughs> well, good night. Good night. I was listening to you talk to Alec Baldwin on his show, Here's the Thing, and you were talking about your early career. And I was thinking of um, a great actress who's who's been on this show and is so wonderful and brilliant named Judy Greer. And... And also about other women uh, actresses, uh, women actors who are funny. Um, And the world of quirky best friends, um, which seems to be often the world that anyone who is a woman who is funny, and it's changed somewhat, but um, anyone who's a woman who's funny is consigned to uh, or given the opportunity to play in. I mean, there's good things about it, too. But 
but like the, your early career was um, standing next to uh, a, a pretty girl. Yeah, I was gonna say it's like yeah, like a movie star looking. I mean, you're you're real pretty, Sarah. I, I, oh. I'm not. <laughs> But, no, uh, no, no, no. I put you in a terrible position. But uh, um, I, I think you, I think you know the kind of thing I'm talking yes. about. And I think mm-hmm. for some people that feels like a that feels like a prison. You know, there's some people who just. I mean, I know, uh, like for example, uh, Sarah Silverman. She's just like, yeah, I'm just not going to do that ever. And for that reason, she's you know she's worked a lot more as a comic than she has as an actress because that's what show business wants her to do. Um. And uh, uh, it sounded like partly you kind of liked you kind of liked the part where you were uh, you know you were just working and doing different stuff. Mm-hmm. I yes, I mean obviously there are there are a lot of jobs I just simply took because I really needed to you know pay my con ed bill or um, but the jobs. The things that I remember most and that were most meaningful often were the cerebral best friend of the pretty girl. And I say that because... Don't sell yourself were... short, Sarah. You also played <laughs> the quirky best friend of the pretty girl. That's true. That's true. Um, but I, but those were... It, well, maybe it's just the way I'm choosing to remember them, but those were always, for me, the more interesting role anyway. Yeah. They weren't on screen as long, and um, they never got to kiss anybody, but they always had insight, and they were a source of comfort, and they were counsel and ears and eyes and witness to, and you always knew that if they could just survive until college, the world was going to be their oyster. and. Maybe that's because that's how I felt. <laughs> um, but I I liked them. And, um, I, I you know, I used to – people used to say, well, you know, maybe you should pluck your eyebrows or get a nose job or all sorts of ideas about um, the a, an easier avenue toward something else um, that I guess seemed, you know, like success. For me, everybody I admired and I – those that I look to ever seem bothered by other people's opinions of them in some way. They just wanted to work. I have more of my conversation with Sarah Jessica Parker after a break. She'll tell me about the first time she kissed her now husband, Matthew Broderick. She says it was just as cool as you'd think it would be to kiss Ferris Bueller. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology finds the right people for you and actively invites them to apply. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. based on hiring sites with over 1,000 reviews on Trustpilot. And now, listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash bullseye. What if a DUI or a fight with your neighbor could hurt your credit score? That is part of a system being piloted in China. If you are not giving way to people while crossing the traffic light, probably you get deducted by like 50 points. This week on The Indicator from Planet Money. Welcome, everyone, to the live wrestling spectacular in Los Angeles. So far, the world's most boring wrestling podcast has been destroying the competition. Isn't there anyone who can save us from this travesty? Wait, could it be? It's Tights and Fights, the perfect wrestling podcast. Tights and Fights is here to save us from the monotony of boring wrestling podcasts with hilarious conversations. Woke trips through the history of wrestling. And joke about the finer points of people wearing spandex. What a match! And the Tights and Fights podcast will be back every week. Thursdays on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get podcasts. Please, these hosts have families. Tights and Fights podcast. Tights and Fights. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. 
My guest is Sarah Jessica Parker. We talked in 2016. She is, of course, the star of Sex and the City. She's also been in films, including L.A. Story, Footloose, and The First Wives Club. She's currently starring in the HBO show Divorce. Your husband is the actor Matthew Broderick. Did you have a relationship with his work before you knew him as a human being? Like, I mean, like, I'm not, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but, like, he was Ferris Bueller, for example. <laughs> um, <clears throat> not only did I have a relationship but with his work, but <clears throat> before I met him, um, I, when I met him, I realized, wow, I've paid for all your movies. <laughs> Meaning, as an audience, I couldn't say that about a lot. I could say it about Woody Allen's movies. From the time I was a young child, we always went to see Woody Allen movies. Um, and when I was in Utah shooting Footloose that summer, I think Matthew had maybe two movies out. And I didn't have a car, but on my days off, I would go to the movies, one or two of which were Matthew Broderick movies. So, yeah, I was very familiar with him uh, as as a performer, as an actor. I Look, I'm, uh, I think that... Um, any relationship is, including a relationship between two very famous people, as the two of you are, uh, is about, like, just regular people. You know, like, I've done this job long enough to know that, like, everybody is is a person, you know? <laughs> Not to yeah. put too fine a point on it, but, like, yeah, people are, you know, human beings. Uh, but at the same time, I do like the idea that there was some part of you, like the first time you and your husband made out or whatever, <laughs> where you were like, yes, making out with Matthew Broderick. Of course. <laughs> yeah. I've never shared that. The things you are, you, you're so probing. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I thought he was, I mean, there was a reason I kept paying to see him. Um, yeah, so when we started dating, um, we met through... Um, friends in the theater he was um, my brothers and Matthew and Matthew's best friend founded this theater company called Naked Angels and I'd be hanging around there and um, that's how we met and uh, for sure part of that was I'd seen that him on a big screen and liked what I saw um, uh, how do you feel about Thomas Hayden Church's distinctive mustache on the show Divorce <laughs> Um, I like it very much. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that he did that because it really has become uh, the sixth character on the show, um, <laughs> and um, it's been a wonderful it's, conversation. It's on the call piece. sheet. <laughs> I, I, since I had a whole conversation. We had Sharon Horgan on the show when we were in London a couple months ago. Uh, she and I had an extensive conversation about it backstage. Um, I am ready to make out with him with that mustache. <laughs> like, I think he is, uh, I think he looks so handsome with that mustache. Me too. I think it's so great. And it's so, and it is also a little bit, it is both incredibly like dashing and handsome and a little ridiculous well, in a know, very it's... perfect way. If it, 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 that really helps define that character who has those qualities. Uh, to totally. Absolutely. And I will say one other thing which fits into this idea when we were in prep for the show and in fact earlier than that I started thinking about what I hoped the show would look like cinematically and and what I wanted the music to look like and the costumes and 70s cinema played was the central in, inspiration for me I mean that's what I kept circling around and I encouraged everybody else to circle around and um you know, all the great movies from the 70s and how they were shot and music from the 70s. I wanted that to not only play a really important role, um, but I imagined that that music was the music as separate young people they fell in love to, you know, a first kiss, um, you know, skipping school, all these things that were um, narrated by 70s music and, um, you know, Albert Wolski and all the great costume designers. And, and so this mustache was part it fits so beautifully into those ideas and just glimpses of things the show is not a period piece um but it is we helped tell it with music from the 70s and even the, our composer i really wanted him to find ways of um 
using the flute um, because I felt like it had been ignored for too long. And <laughs> I, I love the sound and it's so evocative and anybody of a certain age group or who's interested in music would have a reaction, not just to the, obviously, to the source music, but to the composed music as well. So the mustache was this gift because it was, it so beautifully fit into these ideas. Well, Sarah Jessica Parker, I, I, I'm I'm out of time with you, but I'm so grateful that uh, you came in to talk to us. Uh, I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, it's been such a treat, and you just did not let me down at all, and you asked such good, smart, interesting questions, and it's been a real privilege to have time with you, so thank you so much. Sarah Jessica Parker. You can currently watch the first two seasons of Divorce on HBO Now and HBO Go. She's also starring in and producing a new movie called Here and Now that's set to hit theaters November 9th. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My next guest is Chris Gethard. Chris was, of course, the host of the legendary Chris Gethard Show. It aired first on New York City Public Access Television, then later on the network Fusion. You might have also seen him on Broad City or in Don't Think Twice, the Mike Birbiglia improv movie. Chris is also a stand-up, and when we talked, he'd done a really interesting special. It's called Career Suicide. It's kind of a one-man show. Gethard produced it with Judd Apatow. It's a genuinely moving special. Gethard talks very specifically about alcoholism, about depression, even death, but he does it in ways that are totally human, very identifiable, very funny. Chris has a new book coming out. It's called Lose Well, and it's sort of a self-help book. He talks about the lessons that he's learned in life, shortcomings and successes in show business, stories of family and friends, and there's even a section on his high school band. The lesson, if you really want to be good at anything, you're going to fail. And if you want to know the right way to fail, Chris Gethard has some advice. Anyway, let's take a listen to a little bit from The One Man Show. Here he's talking about his early days in show business, running from audition to audition to get bit parts in commercials. I get acting, I start getting acting work. I'm getting mostly commercials, mostly commercials. If you search my name on YouTube, to this day, you go deep enough in the search results, you can still find a very annoying commercial for H&R Block, where I wear later hosen. You can find that? <laughs> and I once auditioned for a Subway sandwich commercial to play the role of man who is unattractive to women. <laughs> that was the character's name in the script. They couldn't even call him Doug or something like that. I didn't book that part, I'm assuming because. <laughs> Chris Gathard, welcome back to Bullseye. It's good to see you. Great to see you too. So your new special or one-man show, whatever you want to call it, is called Career Suicide. It's largely about your mental health. Do you feel exhausted by talking about your <laughs> mental health? You know what I mean? 100%, yeah. One of the great things about the special coming out is that maybe I can talk about I can stop. <laughs> and everything I have to say about it is in that special. And when I get asked about it, I can just... Uh, Tell people, you know, find it on all your uh, HBO-driven streaming platforms from this point <laughs> forward because that's really what I have to say about it because um, it has been many years of talking about it in some form or another. And, and definitely it's exhausting and doing the show more exhausting than I thought for sure. It feels like part of what you are doing in the special and also in your memoir, which was the last time you were on the show, I think, is – in writing about it, in performing about it, you are talking yourself into engaging with it fully. Yeah. I think that's a very astute observation. I think there's like definitely a part of me that knows that if it's not hidden, it has less power over me. If it's not something I'm trying to, you know, overcome quietly in private, then other people might actually help. And there's something to be said too for, you know, anytime I've Anytime I put it out there and, and other people respond to it, like sometimes people, you know, people have seen the show and they'll wait afterwards and they'll say, oh, like I really identify with that. Thank you for saying that. It rang true. And that's really nice. But it's also that goes in my direction, too. Like it's nice for me to feel less alone 
And uh, there's there's certain jokes in the show that anytime they get a laugh, I'm like, okay, I'm, oh, other people feel that? Great. Good. Good. So, yeah. it's a, What's an example of that kind of joke? Like one of the things that was very heartwarming for me was in the course of the show, I have all stretch where I talk about the side effects of different medications that I've been on. And uh, it, it, on certain nights, there would be people who would um, – sometimes a comedian will go out and say like – like mentioned Toledo and then the people from Toledo start clapping. I'm in a situation where I mentioned Wellbutrin and the other Wellbutrin <laughs> takers start clapping. And that's like the perfect example of something where I'm like, this feels cool. Like I've set up an environment where this is okay to put, not just put out there when it's not always okay to put out there, but like people are actually like cheering for it and they understand why that's funny. And that makes me feel connected to them. And we're getting, this is in a section about how brutal side effects can be. And we're connecting in this way. It, it was very much a, an asset to me as well in those moments. But that's a, that's a challenge and a burden as well. I mean, it's not – it may be different for you, but I know that in my experience, when people share something like that about themselves with you on the basis of your performance, it is an incredible gift that means a lot. But it is also a hard thing to shoulder sometimes. Yeah, and and, and it's – it's one of those things that's a real double-edged sword in the sense of a big part of why I'm putting on this show is because this was so hard for me to talk about. And I have that in my head of like, I, I just want to really put on a funny show. But maybe if someone sees it and they find it easier to talk about, that's great. Maybe someone sees it and talks to their kid a little more freely. That's great. Like those are, I, I want to make the show that I wish I had when I was, you know, 18, 19 years old and, and didn't have an outlet that would spur this conversation like I'm, I'm psyched about that at the same time i'm also this is real for me and i'm not always emotionally equipped to take on more and there's times where people tell me things that are very personal or scary or dark and it, it, it fills up you know i've had like people wait for me after the show to tell me about times that they've they've hurt themselves or people in their lives who who are gone now like and that's it's it's makes me feel great that I've created something where people feel like they can air this stuff out, get it off their chests, but it's also very hard. Do you feel like if you could cross out your condition from your life, you would? I think I would. If I could go back, I th- I think I would. But you know what's it's interesting. My a few years ago, I got I got open up the mail one day. And I had a letter from my mom, and it was a handwritten letter that she mailed me, like the actual U.S. Postal Service. And, you know, th- this is not a thing that happens so often anymore. So immediately I was like, "What? what is this? And I read it, and it was this – clearly my mom had put a lot of uh, thought into it. And uh, it, it was this letter where she she basically said, you know, I've thought a lot about your stuff and your childhood and – you know, some of the things that you and your brother dealt with. And she's like, for a long time, I felt a lot of guilt and, and wondered if I should have done some things differently. But now you're older and I see your work and I see that there's a lot of young people who are, are getting a lot out of it. And, and it's, she's like, I have to say, like, I wouldn't take it back because I see who you've turned into and what you've done with it. And I think it's a, uh, I think you're you're helping some kids out there. As you can imagine, that was a very emotional experience for me to read that. As far as I go, though, yeah, I'd probably <laughs> I'd probably change it <laughs> if I could go back and not have to deal with some of the stuff I dealt with, for sure. But my mom had that perspective on it, which was both nice to read and also very intense, very heartbreaking. <laughs> me personally, though, if I could go back to 1991, 1992 and just flip a switch and not have to deal with it, probably. Probably. <laughs> I gotta, let's play a clip from my guest Chris Gethard's television show, The Chris Gethard Show, because it, it's – I don't know if you could say anything is representative of the show because a lot of things happen. <laughs> but you have uh, Paul Shear and Jason Mantzoukas, two very brilliant uh, comic actors on the show, and especially brilliant improvisers. Um, who I'm sure you've probably known 15 or 20 years from the Upright Citizens Brigade world. And on this episode of the show, two two things are going on. One (laughs) is you've brought a dumpster onto the show, and the plan is to investigate what's in the dumpster. Yeah. 
The second thing that's going on in the show is that you are, you're making clear that you do not have further plans for the show. So if the dumpster thing doesn't pan out, <laughs> the stakes are there's nothing else to, ha- to, to have happen. There's no plan B. Yeah. So let's take a listen. Welcome to the Chris Gethard Show. I'm very, very happy because we're about to do, I think, the dumbest show we've done in years. <laughs> we brought our dumpster into the studio, and you guys are going to have a chance to uh, guess what's in there. We're asking you guys to call in, Skype in. You can take a guess, and that's the whole show. <laughs> that's it. I'm going to tell you a couple things about this. One, if you don't guess, I'm wheeling this thing out of here, and you never get to see it. And two, if you guess right away, we have no backup plan. No backup plan at all. And I love that this already feels like a late night UCB show circa 2001. Because my old friends, Paul Shear and Jason Mezrukas are here, ladies and gentlemen. This is the theory I wanted to give you, is that to some extent, the format of your show feels like an institutionalization of your mania, which is to say (laughs) that you have found a way to have the absurd commitment to terrible ideas that comes from mania that is from uh, what I've been told and what's been described to me, totally amazing feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Without necessarily specifically having to be in a manic state. (laughs) Yes. Well, I certainly, it's funny because, you know, I certainly as an artist... I don't think making art has sorted out my issues in any way. Therapy and medication <laughs> have done that. But I do think the art became a healthy way to direct some stuff that wasn't always healthy. I think there's certainly a type of endorphin or adrenaline that I clearly need in my head. And uh, it's better for it to happen over the airwaves in in a way that's intentional than to let it just set in day to day. So, yeah, I think I think you're you're... Your observations are correct, for sure. It is bad ideas. Like when we started the Gethard Show at UCB before public access, I started every show by saying, I want this to go well. I've put a lot of thought into it. I really genuinely hope it goes well. But if it doesn't, my promise to you is that the disastrous uh, other potential outcome will be as entertaining as if it went well. Like, if we crash and burn, you're going to love watching that probably more than you will if this even goes well. That's always been an attitude that I stand by. We'll have more with Chris Gethard after a quick break. He'll tell me about how after years of his star being on the rise, he still has time to get in fights with his fans on the Internet. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. NPR's Code Switch tackles race and identity in America with humanity and humor. You'll laugh, you'll learn, you'll get uncomfortable. It's worth it. Find Code Switch on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Griffin McElroy. Hi, this is Rachel McElroy. And we've got a new podcast on Maximum Fun called Wonderful. Wonderful. It's an enthusiast podcast where we talk about things that we're excited about and things that you're excited about. Things like overalls. 24-hour Sudafed. The grand prize game. The fact that wombats use their butts to kill predators. The soundtrack to the movie Dick Tracy. The beach potion we call Bud Light Lime. All these things and more every Wednesday. And we'll also talk about things that you're excited about. You can find us on MaximumFun.org or iTunes or wherever. I don't know. Just search Wonderful. Google it, you'll probably get there. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Chris Gethard, is a comedian and the star of the one-man show Career Suicide, which is watchable now on HBO. He's also the author of the new book, Lose Well, which hits bookstores October 16th. We talked last year. One of the things you talk about in your special show, Career Suicide, is the extent to which you had linked your emotional health to your career, this presumption that if your career was successful that you would be emotionally healthy because of that. Yeah. Um, Two-part question. Do you feel differently about that now, or are you able to feel differently about that? The second part is, do you think you would feel comfortable doing work in your career that was good work but not capital G, capital W, good works? You know what I mean? Like just if you were like – if you got cast on as the second guy on a funny sitcom and you were doing a good job of that. Yeah. And the sitcom wasn't evil but neither was it a place for teenagers to come out. Right. Right. It wasn't, it wasn't a 
guided by this sense of urgency or uh, the chip on its shoulder that my work clearly has now. It's, <laughs> it, it, like I'm definitely a workaholic. It's a problem. It's probably like one of the biggest things I still wrap my head around is that I get caught too caught up in career stuff. You know, a lot of that is that there's the anxiety that it could all go away tomorrow, which it could. Getting better about that, you know, I have a little bit more stability than I've ever had before. That's a nice feeling, but it still is this thing I have to remind myself of. I always had this feeling of like, uh, you know, like if if I can just get one of those big jobs, everybody will have to notice it and they'll have to admit that I was right going for this and they'll have to admit that I have what it takes, which presupposed that there were all these people doubting me, which was not really true. Like I had this chip on my shoulder about proving everybody wrong and then I would accomplish certain things and I wouldn't feel that validation. I had to kind of admit and, and cop to the fact of like, that there is no them that I can prove wrong and then there will be this victory. Like something's going on inside. I actually once witnessed, it was at ASCAT in New York backstage at UCB and there was a friend of mine who was a cast member on SNL talking with a friend of mine who was a correspondent on The Daily Show and they were stressing so hard. Man, I don't know what's going on. Am I going to get... What's my next gig? Blah, blah, blah. I might have to move across the country. And they were so stressed. And I was like, man, I always figured if I got one of those jobs, I'd be happy. You're in the Daily Show. You're on SNL. You've reached the mountaintop. Now you can kick back because you've proven everything you need to prove. And I was like, oh, if they're still so stressed out, I have no hope. So I better just learn to enjoy the things I do because getting stuff is not going to fix any of my problems. As far as like, could I, you know... Could I settle in and really enjoy it if I was doing something that was maybe a little more square than some of the, or standard, you could say, some of the stuff I've done? I don't know. Like, I mean, you could be for you could be on the next Thirty Rock. Thirty Rock's the funniest show. It's you a know, great show. There's more funniness in that show than there is in, but it's I not feel- about. It's not about much more than being funny. I mean, it's about some other thing. Yeah. I'm not trying to diminish 30 Rock, one of my favorite shows of all time. Of course. But it doesn't have that fire in its gut trying to prove something. Right. <laughs> it doesn't have this mission statement of trying to like break the system and yeah. sneak in the back door. I feel like I probably could. I imagine, you know, I, I think hard about it because there's, there's a part of me that's also like, if something like that were to happen, like, I don't think anybody's going to doubt that I tried at this point, you know, nobody's <laughs> doubting my integrity or my indie credibility at this point. Like, I think anyone who knows my work would say that guy spent years bending over backwards to try to do this thing. And at times he was the only one who knew why he kept going. At times, I had visibly quit, and other people, fans or other people working on the show, would convince me to keep going. So there's a part of me that's like, at a certain point, I've done my part, and maybe I could move on and just do something. I'm sure I'd find some side project very quickly to um, push the buttons that fuel a lot of my, my mischief. One of the things that makes me want to keep accomplishing stuff is, you know, you see people in this industry who eventually get to a point where they can produce other people's work. And I'm not quite there yet, but I would love to be because I, I feel like one of the things I have going right now is I remember what it was like for me seven, eight, nine, ten years ago when nobody was particularly interested and I had to just like kick down some doors and make it happen for myself. I'd love to find the comedians who are in that spot and help them not have to spend half a decade on public access TV to make it happen. So that's another thing is like, Maybe if I was to get one of those bigger jobs, that could give me that credibility, and then I could bring some other stuff into the world. But who knows? I don't know. I'll sell out someday. Everybody does, right? Who knows? A friend of mine was telling me this past week, he has a friend who sold a company for $65 million, and he said this to me as a kind of warning. He said, my friend sold his company for $65 million. Now <laughs> all he does is make bad art. And I was like... It's the dream. Make bad art. Yeah. yeah. I'm in. That's all I'm I've, already making bad art. That's what I've been doing for years. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody's <laughs> not really getting paid that well for it. Yeah. You just I certainly don't have $65 million for it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to find a market for my bad art. That's perfect. Yeah. It is funny, though, talking about the idea of like moving on. It's, you know, the Gethard Show. When I talk about the Gethard Show, for years, that has been my people. And they're still my people. They're punk kids, they're weirdos, they're artists. 
A lot of them are queer. A lot of them are doing things their own way. You know, a lot of them either by choice or by necessity are people who have walked their own path and they find this and it's like, oh, this is a community of people who have walked their own path. It's a beautiful thing. I'm very, very proud of it. Those are my people. But it's funny. They are so DIY that like I get the sense online sometimes. I'm really in tune with these people. This past week, I was in a fight with my own fan club online. They banned, they shut, they stopped comments on my post in the Facebook group that's my fan club, the Getheads. And I was honestly mad about it. And they were like, we don't care. We're shutting you down. Like, I have this contentious relationship. And I get the sense sometimes that, like, they are such underground people and so passionate about the values of that, that me being in Mike Birbiglia's movie is a little bit of a sellout move. (laughs) (laughs) The beautiful anonymous podcast, a podcast. They're like, you're getting a little too mainstream for us, buddy. And there's almost like a countercultural element to the Gethard show where I have to grow and I have to evolve. And I'm in a, it's a very fascinating thing to realize. I don't know if they want me to. And that's a very odd feeling. It's a very odd feeling. I can feel them being happy for me, but I can also feel I can feel a lot of my older school fans feeling like, man, like he's really uh, he's really growing up and moving on, and I don't know exactly how to handle that because I feel like that's what I've always been working towards is trying to get a better head on my shoulders. It's weird. I don't know how to go. I'm heading, you know, especially thinking about HBO. Like that's a more that's a bigger platform than I've ever had. Yeah, Judd Apatow's name before you're yeah, it's on like top of your credits. Pretty fancy stuff. How much longer can I claim to be this rebel trying to uh, throw rocks from the outside the house, you know? I don't know how much longer people are going to buy that. But I don't really know what else I am. Are you worried that you're not going get, to get The Tonight Show and you're going to have to move to CBS and enlarge the band? Oh, my God. That play would to be, a bigger theater? I could follow that man's life. That would be... Be the, I often. I don't th- know. I just read a biography <laughs> of that man. Oh yeah, his life sounds horrible. <laughs> yeah, frankly, I mean, Frank, I can only talk about what I what I have witnessed as a consumer of pop culture. Oh yeah, the Seems greatest like the genius dream. ever. Yeah, of yeah, course. the most brilliant, out of the box genius. Um, <laughs> a kid certainly can't. He doesn't vouch. seem thrilled about it. No, though. as far as the things you read about the actual um, loneliness of that pursuit, <laughs> yeah. doesn't seem great. But I, I think a lot about if he would be proud of the Chris Gethard show. That's like a major concern of mine is like if footage of this ever went across David Letterman's desk, would he be psyched? Because in my mind, a lot of what's behind it is not talking bad about anybody, but late night just used to be a lot weirder, I think. It just used to be weirder. He was weird. Conan still is weird. Even Carson had a lot of weird stuff on there. There used to be this element to it where it would get a little chaotic or unpredicted. And now, in my opinion, seems much more controlled. And that's okay. But I want my show to be an hour of just that. Letterman used to sometimes just like get a permit to shut down the block so he could pour 10,000 rubber balls off the roof of his studio onto the street. And that was it. No thought about it beyond that. Let's just send the guy into the deli across the street with a camera so I can talk to the deli guy. No planning beyond that. We're not scripting what Rupert the deli man has to say. Certainly, you know, let's let's bring Harvey Picar on and just get in an actual fight. Let's have Jerry Lawler slap Andy Kaufman across the face. These unplanned chaotic moments um, that Letterman in particular, I think, nailed is to me, that's always been my height of comedy. And I think the Chris Gethard show is an effort for me to go, can we just do a full hour that's just that stuff? Well, you seem to be obsessed with the genuine sense of danger of that, the genuine sense that failure is at hand. Yeah. Because fil- Letterman lives, lived in, there was a long time oh. when Letterman's greatest pleasure was to marinate in failure with a dumb smile on his face. I love it so much. And to me, it's not even like I think failure's funny. I mean, I do. I think failure is one of the funniest things in the world. <laughs> but there's also something really necessary about it. And there's something so fun about surviving failure. That's like... With my background as an improviser, one of my favorite things in the world was when an improv show would happen and I would feel, I would go, I have no idea what's going on. I don't know what anybody's talking about, 
but I'm surviving. The audience doesn't even realize that I don't know what's up. And I think the same thing with my talk show of like, and the podcast, the podcast is also tweet out a phone number, whatever call comes in, they get to talk for an hour. I just have to deal with it. Like there's a big part of me that feels like when I succeed, I want to succeed in huge fashion, surprising fashion that nobody saw coming. That dumpster episode, not to be cocky, but like, I think Vulture put out an article saying that was the best hour of TV they saw all year. I'm like, to have an episode as dumb as Guess What's in Our Dumpster and then like a, a publication I respect saying something about it, I want to succeed that big off the dumbest idea. But if I don't succeed that big, I want to fail so hard. I want to fall on my face. I want people to watch me get caught. I want people to watch me just get blindsided by the failure of my own idea. I don't want a safety net because I think that's more interesting to watch for the consumer. What I never, ever want is to land in a safe middle ground where you plan it so meticulously and you understand what you have so much that you can't take chances beyond that. I never want to get to a place ever in my career with any work I do where I'm reasonably sure it's going to end well and then it ends reasonably well. I want to either succeed big or fail hard. I think both of those are more fun and interesting, both for myself and the consumer of comedy, than a safe middle ground. I just never want to land in that middle ground. Chris, thank you so much for coming back on Bullseye. Thanks. Sorry I rambled and ranted so much. Chris Gather. His one-man show, Career Suicide, is wonderful. It's on HBO. His book, Lose Well, hits bookstores later this month. Every week, we wrap up Bullseye with a pop culture recommendation from me, your host. It's called The Outshot. Dadhood makes a sound. It goes... A man walks down the street, he says, Why am I soft in the middle now? Why am I soft in the middle? The rest of my life is so hard. I need a photo opportunity. I want a shot of redemption. Don't want to end up a cartoon in a cartoon graveyard. Bone digger, bone digger, dogs in the moonlight. Far away. I mean, here's the thing. Every morning, my five-year-old climbs into my station wagon. I drive her to kindergarten. At 7.45, my brain's still sore from waking up. I don't want to hear the news. I certainly can't deal with the thoughts that are in my head. And so I start flipping through the albums on my phone. And I end up pretty much every time reenacting this 30-year tradition. Three decades of pasty dads from cassette to CD to iPod to telephone playing Paul Simon's Graceland on the car stereo. There was a bright light, a shattering of shop windows, the bomb in the baby carriage was wired to the radio. These are the days of miracle and wonder. This is the long distance call. The way the camera follows us in slow-mo. The way we look to a song. The way we look to a distant constellation that's dying in a corner of the sky. These are the days of miracle and wonder. Don't cry, baby, don't cry, don't cry. I just want to hear something pleasant and engaging and lively. And also with no swear words. (laughs) That is a real problem (laughs) with the albums on my phone. Like, that Kamaya record is not going to work with a five-year-old in the car. Now, of course, I knew there were things that were weird about Graceland even back when I was in elementary school. The cultural tourism of what they used to call world music was and remains a little bit disquieting. 
I didn't know when I was six or whatever that Simon broke a cultural boycott to record in South Africa, but I could tell that there was something weird about white dudes standing in front of choruses of African guys. But I will say this. I have never been much of a folk music guy. Acoustic guitars and vocal harmonies I do not care that much about. But lay that lilting guitar back behind all those words and words and words and words that Paul Simon sings and... My defenses melt. People say I'm crazy. I got diamonds on the soles of my shoes, yeah. Well, that's one way to lose these walking blues. Diamonds on the soles of my shoes. Graceland is the perfect music for middle age. It moves you, but there's nothing heavy or hard. Horns, percussion, those beautiful backing harmonies, but nothing scary. A stew of polyrhythms, but no muddy guitars or cracking snares on the two and four. You know, you can sing along to it. So, I mean, what can I say? I'm 36. There's a five-year-old in the car. I'm a dad. Clichés are clichés for a reason, right? That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where I was dramatically delayed getting to the office today by traffic for the Dodgers' 163rd game of the year, the NL West tiebreaker. Unfortunately, as of this recording, they are winning. What can I say? I'm a Giants fan. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Casey O'Brien. Production fellows at Max Fun are Jesus Ambrosio and Shayna Deloria. Our senior producer at Max Fun is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music was recorded for us by DJW, a.k.a. Dan Wally. Our thanks to Dan for sharing it with us. Our theme song was provided to us by the great band The Go Team and by their great label Memphis Industries. Our thanks to them. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, and I am talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, we are now coming up on almost 20 years of shows. You can find them at our website at MaximumFun.org. You can also find us on your uh, various social medias, your Facebook, your Twitter, your YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.